G'day and welcome to the Mind Your Body Show. I am your host, Jacob Andre, and today I am talking to Anthony Hazeldean. So if you'd like to know more about testing protocols for talent identification, stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacob Andre, and for over a decade, I've trained everyone from children to elite athletes to move better, feel better, and perform better. While a thorough understanding of fitness and nutrition is vital, underpinning that is mindset. And I've come to discover just how important it is. I've worked with literally thousands of people. And more often than not, it's the ones who win the mind game who succeed in the big game. So how do they do it? This is the Mind Your Body Podcast. G'day and welcome to the episode Prelude with Anthony Hazeldean. Now, before we get into it, if you'd like to listen to or watch any of our past episodes or future ones, then please head on over to our home base, which is our website, www.themindyourbodyshow.com. And of course, you can view all of our episodes over on our YouTube channel at The Mind Your Body Show, along with all the short little mini takeaway videos that we post there. Now, if you've been following me for a while, you know that I'm absolutely loving Instagram and particularly Instagram stories. So for more behind the scenes content, stuff that I'm sharing, which you won't be able to access anywhere else, head on over to my YouTube, my Instagram page at the Mind Your Body Show with underscores in between each word. And of course, for all the videos on these topics, as well as much more, the same thing on Facebook at the Mind Your Body Show. Okay, if you take away anything from this episode, if you are watching this on YouTube or on the website, then please comment along in the comment section below and let us know what your takeaways are as you go through the episode. And of course, if you liked it, please like it on YouTube. Of course, also like it on Instagram and then share it with your friends if you found value in the episode. Now, Anthony is a local boy. I would call him local. He's been here long enough. He was actually born in New Zealand, grew up in the Solomon Islands, moved back to New Zealand, then came over to Australia. He grew up in Darwin from, I think, the sort of his pre-adolescence years and sport physical activity in general was a huge part of his life, particularly in terms of unstructured play. And he gives a really good example in the episode of what life was like for him growing up. And now about three decades later, living only a few hundred meters away from where he grew up, watching his daughter and seeing the changes that he sees three decades apart with kids out and playing. Now, I'm not going to make it sound like that, oh, kids don't get out and do stuff because he talks a lot about um, kids getting out and playing at the skate park. And one of the really valuable things I really like Anthony, I really like that Anthony said was some kids came up and approached him and asked him to play with his scooter. And he makes the comment that kids are natural coaches, but you don't see coaches at the skate park. And so that's a little bit of insight into what this episode is about in the balance between structured play and unstructured play. And all of that comes through in his life's work of talent identification. So he goes through a whole bunch of different training or testing protocols for how to best identify talent. Now, Anthony is one of the most giving people of his time and of his knowledge. One of my fondest memories of him is a time when, as I talk about in the episode, he saw that I took on a role with a local football club and he had been doing that role before me. He reached out. He said, hey, do you want to know anything? Um, Pick up on sort of where I left off. And we sat down for literally four hours and we could easily 
have spoken for two, three times that amount of time. He is so giving of his knowledge and of his time. And I'm so grateful for Anthony being a guest on the episode. So what you are going to learn about and discover in this episode is what it was like for Anthony growing up barefoot with no TV in the Solomon Islands. And I think that really sets the scene for the episode and it also sets the foundation for Anthony's life. The importance of having a personal connection to why you're doing something, how sport builds character to instill great values and help individuals become great people, the value of free play in identifying talent, the importance of balancing structured play with unstructured play, the difference Anthony sees when out walking with his daughter compared to when he grew up three decades apart in time, but only a few hundred meters apart in location. Why making things safer may actually make, thing, make them more dangerous. How to blend sport and mental health issues. That was really intriguing. That was sort of when he left working at the AIS. He worked uh, at the Northern Territory Institute of Sport. He moved on to the Australian Institute of Sport in talent identification. And then he had the opportunity to extend that role. He talks about the whole period around after Sydney Olympics in the year 2000. And he decided to go in a slightly different direction and work with uh, children who were beginning to show signs of uh, disengagement. And I really like the way that he, the, the work he did there with blending sport and mental health issues. The similarities between Australian and Indigenous communities and the Middle East. Now, Anthony ended up going on over to the Aspire Academy, which is the world's biggest sports academy in Doha, Qatar. And he spent, I'm pretty sure it was seven years there before now coming home to Darwin for um, personal and family reasons with the whole COVID pandemic and wanting to, different things from his life. How the Aspire Obstacle Course came to be now that was really interesting i love obstacle courses and they were doing their testing stuff in schools over in qatar and they ended up creating this obstacle course in order to better test children i think that is just such a awesome idea why kids are natural coaches the similarities between ramadan and elite athletes i really really like that how we're changing human movement intelligence and the crossover of playing multiple sports, the value in that, particularly of playing Australian rules football and all the dynamics that go into that sport and how playing that sport as a kid helps with so many other sports. Now, I think gymnastics is the nucleus of all other sports. Athletics is a foundation. I believe it's a step up from that. But playing a sport later on after those two sports as a child and developing those fundamentals in gymnastics and athletics that you can develop so many athletic capabilities through playing Australian rules football. You are running with people trying to bump you, hit you, tackle you from all different directions. You've got an ob a weird shaped ball. It's an oval shaped ball, which bounces in all different directions. And you've got people jumping up and take jumping on people's backs and taking marks for anyone that doesn't understand Australian rules football, taking a mark is grabbing the ball, which means that play stops. But in the way the game is played now and evolved, it very rarely stops. It's very quick paced. And how he talks about, Anthony talks about in that, how playing that sport can help with other sports, all other sports. And I'm going to leave you with a quote that Anthony talks about from Vern Bandetta, which is, there are, um, there are, seek, there are no secrets to hard work. And can, um, Sorry, I've really stuffed this up. There are, there are no secrets 
but hard work and commitment. So there's no secrets to success. It's all about hard work and commitment. Now, here are my four, actually five in this case, takeaways. Using sport to instill great values and become a great person. Look out for this part of the episode. It comes pretty early in and it's Anthony talking uh, about uh, the rugby league coach at the NTIS who then went over to England to coach in Super Rugby and how it was all about developing character. I really like that. Skill acquisition through free play. So how we can uh, develop skills through just simply allowing free play. However, it's important to keep the structured lessons and the structured play, but just why free play is so important. Why making things safer may make them more dangerous. Now this goes, this comes from a sport sort of idea, which we're discussing. And then Anthony goes into a traffic example. And I really like that for multiple areas of life. Blending sport and mental health issues, this is the part where he talks about the boxing program and how effective that can be for um, helping marginalised kids get back on track. The similarities between Ramadan and elite athletes. Now, this comes down to commitment, discipline and motivation, but essentially discipline and how it's actually not a difficult thing. If it, you know what you're doing and why you're doing it, you've got crystal clear clarity and you understand the purpose of why you're doing it. So you're connecting with it um, at an emotional level. It's actually not that difficult. And so I've often heard that um, success requires a lot of sacrifice. And I was taught by one of my athletics coaches that it's not a sacrifice, it's your choice. If you choose to call it a sacrifice, that's on you. However, whether you call how you want to perceive a sacrifice to be comes down to your perception. And I've never since that moment believed in sacrifice. It is simply a choice which I make. And I think the example that he gives comparing Ramadan to elite athletes and their pursuit of excellence and success is all about sacrifice, but it's about making that choice and understanding, being extremely clear on why you're doing something and then connecting with that purpose. And then it's not a difficult choice at all. It's just something that you do. And then last of all, how have we changed human movement intelligence? A little bit of um, food for thought there. Okay. I would love to know what your big takeaways are in the episode. As you are listening in, please share them. Take a screenshot of you listening on your device and share it to your Instagram story, tagging myself at the Mind Your Body Show with underscores in between and Anthony at Hayes here, H-A-Z-E-H-E-R-E at Hayes here. And let's get the conversation happening wherever it is that you enjoy listening into us, whether it's on our home base at themindyourbodyshow.com, on YouTube at themindyourbodyshow.com, Instagram or Facebook, or I can't even think of where else it might be. Um, so wherever it is, oh, I, of course, I've got, how could I forget? On iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Libsyn. All right, let's, without any further ado, get into the episode with Anthony Hazeldean. I have the privilege of sitting down with Anthony Hazeldean. Anthony, how are you? Very well, thank you, Jacob. How are you? Good, thank you. Welcome to the Mind Your Body Show. Before we get into it, how do you mind your body? And what I mean by that is, what do you do in order to look after yourself? What are your favourite things to do in order to make you feel good? Well, I'm a father of uh, children, uh, a married man, a wife, so I like to relax. <laughs> That's uh, certainly one. And when I mean re relax, I'm actually enjoying uh, just being back in, in Darwin where I grew up. Uh, this morning went to the, the park run and I've been five times but I haven't run 
because I stop and observe the, the beautiful natural environment, the, the, the sun coming up, the water as it meets the land and the sky drop in the background, you know, those elements are just, are just wonderful. And, and, and having been in the, in the desert in the Middle East for seven and a half years, you know, you, you get a bit desensitised to, to the natural beauties that it, uh, that it has to offer. So I like to, to relax, have a little bit of time out, listen to music, nothing different to, to I guess, what others, others prefer to do. So interesting. And we're going to get into that story about living in the desert for seven and a half years. But before we do, what's led you, what have been the big things that have happened in your life to make you who you are today? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I've, I've often thought about it, and I guess you do when, you, uh, when you're at my age, uh, knocking on the half century. Um, for me, I often reflect back to my early years. And I remember as a young boy, um, I, I was born in New Zealand, but I left there when I was around two. And my father got a job in the Solomon Islands. And I was running around bare feet, no television. This is back in the 70s. Um, and it was a jungle and we used to run and climb trees and jump in waters. And I was interacting with the villagers. Um, and uh, for me, after five years spending in the Solomon Islands from the age of three, roughly to about eight, and then moved back to New Zealand. And I didn't realize what my mum told me is that I spoke pidgin English. Um, but I gained friends at the school because I could move well, I could run and jump and Back in the 80s, everyone loved sport, and if you were good at it, they wanted you on their team. And so I soon quickly found that sport seemed to be a bit of a natural avenue to, to uh, bring the social context uh, into my life. Um, it also made me competitive. Um, I was winning a lot of new friends. Then as you get a little bit older, um, I guess the, the physicality of being fit and strong, there, there, there were girls coming into, into play, and so if you're sporty and you're, you're fit, so sport seemed to be the real natural choice. And then I, I remember at uh, under 12s, I made my first rep team and we went to, to Brisbane uh, for cricket. And uh, I didn't realise you could travel uh, with a team, get on an aeroplane with, with, with all your mates and all your friends that you played cricket with. And it was a great adventure through the NT school, school sport and the Australian championships. Um, and I thought, wow, this is really opening my eyes to to the rest of Australia and the world. And it, it just happened from playing a sport I'd do freely in the backyard or over at the park. Um, and so this trend continued to happen through sport and, and representative times and, you know, winning trophies and things like that. But the real key for me was the, the friendships that I, that I gained. Um, and I wanted to continue that on in regards to making it in sport uh, you know, I had the dream that I, I'd be very successful as an athlete in sport, but it was it was way off what my potential was. So I, I soon quickly realised I was never going to reach that dream. So at that time, the Northern Territory Institute of Sport had just opened and I, I asked a few people, oh, look, how do I get a job in this area? And they said, well, um, you should go off and get yourself a degree in human movement exercise science and, and, and that's exactly what I did I did that as a mature age student um, so I guess I had a certain level of maturity but it was it was what I wanted to do and I did it at Southern Cross University 
And I'm thankful for the first two years I, I didn't go out and about and discover Byron Bay, which was just up the road, because if I had, <laughs> I would have been spending more time at the, at the beach and probably in the, in the library doing, doing the research. Um, so I, I studied that. I did my work experience at the Institute and it, it just took off from there for me. Uh, I think the key for it was having a passion and having some pre-existing life experiences that whilst I was learning, I was looking to relate it to my, my own personal experiences. And, and I think that's what makes uh, made the difference for me as opposed to someone thinking, mm, all right, I'll do this subject, study it and see what I get from it. If you have a personal connection to why you're doing it, um, I think that can really help. The timing was good as well. The Institute was new and it opened up. And uh, I, I remember my father saying, you know, if you ever get an opportunity, you put your hand up and you take it as you go along. So, you know, that philosophy has, um, has uh, seemed to work well for me uh, so far. Do you remember what decade that was that the NTIS opened up and you started there? Uh, yeah, it was around 80, oh, 83, I think, the plaque on there is the opening, 80. 85, uh, would that be right? Maybe, no, sorry, 90, 95, sorry. I think around 1995 uh, was when it was because then I started uh, my degree in 97, 98. So I had a few friends that were scholarship holders, uh, people that I knew, you know, Nova Paris, Brendan, Brendan Tennant, who's now Brendan Tamo, um, you know, there's lots of names that I haven't mentioned just there, but those are some key figures. One of them, Brendan Tennant, you know, Tamo, who was over in the Middle East, uh, working in the in the field at the Aspire Academy. So, you know, there's there's good avenues that you can give back to community what you've what you've learned and what you've come through. Um, if if your sporting side of things tends to plateau out, you, you can give back, and and that's a little bit what I'm trying to do today with the podcast is just to share my experiences, information. Maybe there's other people wanting to take a similar path and what that might be like. And that was around the time that I met you, um, probably seven or, so, or five or so years after. That. Anyway, it was early two thousands when I started my sports science degree and um, took a year off after two years and worked downstairs uh, to the NGOS at Athletics as a development officer. I quickly realised that I did want to finish the degree and I went back and got a lot of experience um, doing work experience there. What was life like to work there, though, right from the beginning, around that 97 and into the early 2000s? Because, of course, in Australia, sport was massive with the Sydney Olympics. Yes, it was. It was at the hiatus. The I was doing my work experience over 90, 1999, to the early year 2000. So as you know, we held the, the Sydney Olympics were in the year 2000. So everything was a real buzz. And, uh, you know, I was a, a, a fresh uh, student graduate, if, if you like, uh, that was just really enjoying being in that, that environment. Uh, this NTIS was used as a training centre uh, for a lot of the athletes that wanted to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city, uh, the lifestyle in the territory, is, as you're aware of, it's, it's very nice, it's relaxed, traffic uh, is very easy to get through. So if, if you're training uh, for an upcoming Olympics, you, you want to ensure that the stresses associated with just general day-to-day life can, can be removed. So the well-being of the athletes were looked after. We had great facilities. The, the, the territory invests 
heavily in the in the facilities and, and they're outstanding uh, if we look at it uh, per, per population. Uh, and the temperature uh, when it's winter down south, it's a beautiful dry season. It's just just lovely to to train with them. Um, we also had a lot of really great coaches. That that for me was the real key. Uh, I learned a lot um, uh, from those from those coaches. Um, yeah, I worked with, with rugby league and, and Shane McNally was, was one real key individual that worked very hard on, on the character of the players, turning them from young boys into young men and giving them a sense of purpose and, and reality through, through sport. And he wasn't saying to them a false pretense that you'll become the next champion rugby league player. He was more concerned about you becoming the next champion young man that's going to have a life and a future ahead of you through all the values that we can instill, wearing the right uniform, turning up on time, looking after your body, nutrition, getting enough sleep, recovery, rest, and complementing that within the team environment. And, and that was great. We, we, we played as a team, and a lot of those players would filter back into the clubs, and some of them now are coaches and enjoying coaching. They're enjoying their life with their children and families and encouraging them to, to participate in sport. So that, that's sometimes often forgotten. Uh, we, we look at the big goal. Well, how many are going on to to play at the at the international stage, as opposed to the just everyday kids like you and I were growing up that were learning the values that sport had under under the the guidance of, of great people, great coaches, and and the institute environment that it was. Yeah, and so you then from there went into working at the AIS doing talent identification, but you're still, I think, in you're based in. The NGIS, what had that transition away from the NGIS work that you're doing as a strength conditioning coach? What was the next step? Yeah, well, uh, after I left the, the NGIS after I think maybe nearly four to five years, my memory's vague as a while ago, uh, I took up an opportunity to go over to uh, the UK to work with a Super League club. Um, and that that transition was, I, I took that opportunity because the, the NTI is an academy environment. Uh, we don't work with professional teams. And so that was one thing that, that it wasn't going to be able to offer me. And I wanted to see what it was like to work in the high pressure cooker environment of a professional team. And in the UK, you know, the press are very hard on you. Uh, there's fans that just live for the team. They know everything about you. They want to know everything about you. So it's a completely different mix and environment. Uh, but I was ready for the challenge. I, I needed that challenge. And that's the key. If you're going to put your hand up for something like that, there's a lot of hours to work, uh, early mornings, there's weekends. Um, so you have to be true to yourself to, to want to take that opportunity. Um, I, I was, I was uh, single at the time, so I, I could just fully commit to that without upsetting I didn't have a family and, and, and so forth from from that great extent so I, I could commit to that with a, a certain level of selfishness because you you do at those professional levels commit a lot of time to it that can impact upon your family so the timing was right for me and and I thoroughly enjoyed those those years over there uh, then after that I came back to the to the territory um, there's just something about the home and the territory that I come back to all my family is here um, and I got the opportunity to work at the uh, Australian Institute of Sport as part of the National Talent Identification and Development Program. Um, and, and through that, I was posted in Darwin uh, 
most probably because of my background and, and that's where I was from and operated the uh, tongue identification program for the northern region of Australia with a couple of key sports. But the focus was Indigenous, Indigenous talent. That was the real key to try and fast track them, identify talent and put them into the 2012 uh, London Olympics. And so what did you see from that, from that experience? Did you see um, in terms of what came to fruition out of that program? Yeah, uh, look, what, what I saw is that there, there was a little bit of an apprehension by community for us to go into community to, to, look, at, to look at talent, um, not necessarily because of what we were doing, uh, but more from the sustainability perspective is that you go in there, do the testing, get the herbs up high, and then if something changes, government changes, then that moves out, and then it's back to square one again. So, uh, you know, I, I began to understand from a community perspective, uh, they must see people, a lot of people coming and going, different faces. So I really connected and understood at the heart and soul what, what that meant to people on community. They're incredibly talented, incredibly outstanding. There's a lot that I've learned from being in that environment um, just historically and culturally that um, is it, quite empowering that you can draw upon and integrate into, into the way that you, you deliver your, your services. And part of that was that they didn't, in these communities, you know, they don't have the luxury of all the, the great facilities and, and the expertise that are, that, that are coming in, that they are a raw breed and a raw product of, of natural capacities. Um, and so I would simply just, I mean, we would do our testing and assessments, but I actually learned more from just observing them when they were at free play, just watching them run around. And we, we found that those that were talented within our test protocols were kids that just couldn't sit still. They just loved getting out and about, climbing trees, doing backflips off. They, they had a movement intelligence is what I, what I call it. They, they really interacted with their environment. They moved well. Uh, they were ex they were expressive entertainers on the field. They'd be playing basketball and improvising all sorts of games. Uh, if the ball was flat, they would grab something that's different and, and, and try to create a ball or an object out of that that they could play with. And, and that it's that creativity rather than a typical structured way of playing and performing that, that really uh, stood out for me. So what was the testing? Do you remember what the testing was that you were doing specifically? Yeah, the common um, uh, tests and assessments that are used uh, widely. So uh, a measure of acceleration and speed. So there's a sprint test, uh, which, which it can vary, but I think your memory hours was a 40-meter sprint. Um, we also uh, did a vertical jump for lower body power. Um, there was also uh, upper body power for, for, for med ball throw there was some agility tests that were involved but then there was also anthropometric measurements of, of, of height and arm span sitting height so we could uh, gauge uh, the level of uh, maturation and, and what I mean by that is we, we could identify a 12 year old that, that's physically above everyone else of the 12 year old age group but they're actually of the physical uh, biological uh, age of, of probably a 15 year old so they're naturally going to be uh, more advantaged than your normal 12-year-old because they're just physically more advanced, um, which tends to level out when they get a bit older. But at the earlier identification stages, you, you have to strongly consider where they are at 
biologically in age as well. So what do you think about the differences between unstructured play and, uh, sorry, structured PE lessons and um, free play, that unstructured? Do you think there needs to be a balance of both? Is one better than the other? What, what do you think about that? I think they're both complementary. I don't think one is better than, than the other. I think when there is a lack of one over the dominance of another, that then I think that could potentially have, have its issues. Um, the thing about now, so I look at my 11-year-old daughter who's living not far from where I used to live as an 11-year-old boy in the same neighbourhood. And if I take her through a, for a walk through the parks and so forth that I used to, uh, there's very few kids out and about running around kicking a footy and playing sports. So I remember walking through parks and particularly around the the, uh, uh, the summer of cricket, it'd be wet season and down, it'd be raining. Uh, whilst it's AFL season, they were all playing cricket in, in the, you know, outside um, and and developing all their, their skills from a different a different sport being being cricket. There's less of that because there are other things that are that are competing with that. Um, and so that's where I consider sort of like the free play element where you would go into a park and there'd be, uh, you know, children of different age groups. Sometimes mums and dads might be involved in it as well. And you would have to modify and adjust the game, particularly with cricket. So if you're a batsman and no one can get you out, uh, pretty much everyone starts leaving. And then the, the poor batsman has got no one to play with. So you modify, the kids would modify the game. We, we would adjust it and say, all right, because you're a good batsman, there's automatic wiki. If you snick the ball, you're automatically out. Or, or there's one hand, one bounce. You were allowed to catch you out on the one hand, one bounce. Or if you hit it over the fence on the full, you're out. Or if you hit it to this part of the field. I mean, this was, this was the great thing about kids. You know, we, we were developing and improvising games so that, that it, 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 could, it could be a, sort of like a fair and equitable system um, you know, sometimes when it would rain, we'd just get the garbage bag out and wrap it around our, around the bat and keep playing. And then what would happen is, is it'd be a, a lot more slippery when you're running. So you have to modify and adjust your running so you wouldn't slip and, and fall over. Again, that's a skill acquisition technique in, in the context of the environment that you're playing in. Uh, the ball would skid off the, the film of water that's pulling down the, down the driveway. and you'd, you'd wrap the ball up in electrical tape and it would just skid off the water at a million miles per hour and you'd and when it whacks you on the body, you get hurt, uh, safely hurt, but you'd, you'd be very cautious. So all those, all those things, part of self-discovery, and, and this is the thing about children, they are natural learners, giving them an opportunity to be themselves in that environment. Uh, my key take on that is we don't do enough observation of our children in that free play environment. And if I can share that story, I remember taking my son when I was in the Middle East uh, to paid uh, soccer training, football training. And there a lot of these parents just sort of hang around the outer edge, yelling out sort of instructions and so forth. Then when there was a party out at someone's house and I'd be meeting and chatting with these people, I would often just observe what the kids are doing in the background in the play area. And there was one particular boy that was just phenomenal with his movements and his ball skills who used to be at this training environment where his father was yelling instructions at him and I told him, why don't you just observe your son in this free and natural environment? Look, look, look how he's mastering the entire area and manoeuvring around and doing skills that I've not seen before in the structured uh, football program that he goes to. And he had a look and he thought, well, I, I never knew that. And, and this is often where talent comes about is, 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 is 
it's quite often these kids are doing these things that are natural. They don't recognise that they happen to have a natural talent for it because then they get thrown in the mix with other other kids and, and, and not actually aware of allowing them to project their natural uh, talents and their, their skills because they want to try and structure and orient it to a particular way. Now, I'm just generalising here. I'm not saying that, that that's a fit for, for all, but that, that was just my experience being over in the, in the Middle East. I'm sure it would be different to others being here in Edinburgh. Reminds me so much of a story that I heard from a guy who I don't know if you know, Stephen Lollius, uh, who's a soccer coach here in Darwin. And uh, he was telling me that growing up um, in Darwin, probably in the 70s as a kid, um, they were playing a lot of soccer and they didn't have the pitches that we have today. And so they were generally just playing on in parks where the ground was really like sort of up and down with lots of roots and stuff like that from the trees. And so they got really good with their ball control, um, light on their feet, so physically competent in terms of like sort of good running technique because they were dodging and um, weaving these and stepping over these roots. But their ball control, because of the way the ball was moving around these roots, he attributes that to a huge part of why they got skillful. Yeah, I, I know Stephen well and and, and the, the Lollius family. They're certainly very talented and and that's right, but, you know, obviously insurance comes into it, someone stubs their toe and falls over it. And, and, and this is the thing with a cotton wool society, if I can say that, is that um, as we make things a lot safer, does it actually become a lot more dangerous? Uh, I mean, my experiences in, in driving in some parts of the world, because they drive crazily, but there's hardly any accidents because they have to be aware of everyone in that space. As soon as you put rules in to make it safe, you can go through the traffic light with a green light and know, well, it's safe. But accidents occur because someone is not actually following the rules and they go through a red light and, and they hit you. Uh, so, so you need to be aware of the dangers. And so whenever I cross over, I tell my kids, you know, just, just be aware. Like even though it's a crossing and it's green and you can walk across and it beeps, you still need to be aware of, of looking left to right going across the road. And so this free play is, you know, it, it has its own inherent dangers. And the kids soon work it out. I remember as a kid, my mum said, don't touch the, uh, the stove element because it's hot. It'll burn you. And I'm like, well, what does burn mean? So mum goes out the room, I touch it. And yet, sure enough, <laughs> I burnt my finger. I never touched it again. Uh, you know, but this is part of that experiential learn of exploration. But I mean, don't get me wrong. We do need to keep our, our environment safe. Uh, but to some extent, um, trying to make it too safe can also have its uh, problems and complications. Yeah, for sure. So what was the next step in the journey to go from the AIS talent ID stuff into then um, moving over to into this fire academy? What happened at that yeah. point? Yeah, I mean, there, there was a stage in between. Uh, after I uh, finished with the AIS, um, what happened there is, is, like I said before, there was a change in government from, uh, from the Rudd government and, and then it, 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 it took a different tact. Uh, and so I was offered an opportunity to continue on with the AIS, but I needed to relocate. And I just wasn't prepared to relocate uh, with my family. So I, I stayed on and I ended up getting a position um, at the uh, Sport and Recreation uh, within the Indigenous Sports Unit. Um, and I, I was really 
interested in going that pathway because of my experiences with the talent unification, going out to community and 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 to seeing the wonderful talent uh, that's out there um, and just wonderful people and, and the culture. Um, and I wanted to be able to contribute back to that. So I got a job with the Indigenous Sports Unit and that was more around uh, providing uh, programs and necessary funding to to ensure that they're not missing out on the benefits that are happening in the, in the main city areas. So I did that for a number of years and enjoyed it. I then shifted across. I was um, uh, approached to join the mental health unit for a new program uh, that was called Counterpunch. And that was um, initiated as an early intervention program using the sport of amateur boxing as a medium to bring about change from youth that are beginning to show early signs of disengagement within the school. Uh, and that program was a, a, a great one. Like people may understand sport and people may understand um, mental health issues, but how do you blend that from sport and into those specialised areas? And the lady that ran the program, Mercedes Taft, she uh, had a background in both. Uh, she's a psychologist and also uh, an, an ex um, champion kickboxer. Uh, so she developed the program, got me on board. Uh, one of the great things about it is, as it being an early intervention, there's possibility to bring about change. It was also setting up that uh, training environment outside of the school area. So within the school ecosystem, the, the kids have their own, I guess, set of rules, if you like, to how they behave. But by moving the program and having it in a neutral space meant that we could start with the ground rules straight away with the kids knowing what's what's expected of them. But it was also a group of, of kids that were not just kids that were showing early signs of disengagement. It also included a handful of kids that were doing well. So we didn't want to have a cohort that, oh, you're all the bad kids, you come in here, here's another program for me. Yeah, yeah, okay, off, off we go. It, it had to be a natural blend of, of what it's like out in the real world where there's a mix of kids disengaging, kids doing well. Uh, but through boxing, the beauty about that is you can work one-on-one. So if you're not quite good with large groups, you can start with one-on-one. If that doesn't work with the opposite partner, they, they can work one-on-one with the instructor and get to know that, that individual. Uh, and then they can slowly work in, in larger groups. Um, but the thing about the, the program was not to get them into the sport of amateur boxing. So, so just using sport as the collective where, uh, like I said before, the Institute Academy getting them to be able to understand the, the values of looking after your body, uh, the right nutrition. It's really about oneself and then getting them to move and interact with, with, with boxing and hitting and, 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 and exercise on the, on the punch bags uh, to get them to feel, be in touch and in tune with their body and how they move and their frustrations and anger. So they could just go off and just punch the bag and learn to, to be able to calm down from that. So some of them just felt that just punching something was the need to get that out because I couldn't verbalise it. So, so we, we were slowly using that methodology to get their, I guess, get their anger out through the, through the, uh, the punch bag and the boxing. And then we would sit down and be able to talk and discuss things going through it. Uh, now, I was there for just a, a few years before I had the opportunity to, to go back into the Academy of Environment in the Middle East. And um, it was a whole new adventure for me. Um, I didn't really want to leave that, that space, but it, it just created a, a whole new adventure and a chance to get back into the elite development 
uh, sector, and that's that's when I chose to then move over to the Middle East, as far as getting. And how did that opportunity arise? Yeah, uh, it, it it came about um, through my previous uh, experience in talent education. Uh, also, uh, I think also my diversity, uh, and also even working in with Indigenous populations, ironically enough, there's a lot of similarities between that and and the the, the Bedouins or the Arabs uh, in in that particular particular region. They're very connected to family and, and, and very connected to, to their culture, very connected to their uh, identity. Uh, one is that they feel that they that their land is their their identity, but but there's still obviously issues within within the Middle East that I won't go into. But I could I could see a lot of transition and change within that. And it was a country that had put their hand up to say that they want to, uh, you know, build their nation and population around sport uh, because they understand all the values that sport has to offer. And I think because of my background and my passion for delivering sport as a means of change and engagement, and I'm excited and passionate about that, I, I won the opportunity to go over there and, and, and discover and pass on the information that I know. Uh, it, but in doing so, my first year was just just really observing, and once again, I go to this observation and 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 beginning to understand the landscape, understand the people, understand their their true needs, and then trying to generate programs around those those basic principles. So you spent seven and a half years there. What was life like? Yeah, I mean, it was look, it was it was great. Um, it's it's an interesting place in that uh, there are a lot of expats. So when you grow up in Australia, you know Australia is home, and then you get your citizenship as as Australian if you're not from there after a period of time, and you're welcomed uh, into the country. Um, not saying that you're not welcomed into the country uh, in, in Qatar, you certainly are welcomed in there. But in, in terms of getting residency and, and so forth. Um, it, it's a very different uh, different system, and so because of that, you 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 become a a deliverer of a service for their people to engage with them. Um, and the key is is because I'm working with them and for the people, um, I want to interact uh, with the culture and the environment. Some line of work where you're not necessarily having to interact; they sort of just lead this expat life, and then. It's, it's separated from uh, from their culture, uh, but I've always felt. My father said that when you travel around the world, if you get to be integrated with the people and you're servicing them, you'll learn a lot from those values, and you, you'll be in a different space to be able to bring about a change. Uh, and for me, that's I think that's the key in, in the message because what I've learned in Australia <laughs> is not necessarily going to work. In the Middle East, what someone's learned from the UK that has transitioned over there doesn't necessarily work. So you have to be very uh, patient, open-minded, um, and, and be there for the for the right reasons at heart. What were the similarities, if any, between urban Australia and and or Indigenous communities within Australia that you've been to through your work and the Middle East? I'm probably more interested in the Indigenous communities. Were there any similarities at all that you could draw between the people, the place at all? Um, 
I'd probably say that their, their community is still in, integrated by, uh, you know, family clan connections. So that, that remains very strong within the family names. So they, uh, in, in the Middle East, uh, you know, they can, they can name their, their line of, of heritage and, and parents right back to their great, 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 great grandfather. Um, so from, from their uh, family connection side, that is ex extremely uh, in important to them. Um, and so when it comes to discussing uh, levels of change, not that my program needed to do that, but understanding this is that to get things, things done, you need to speak to the right people that are within that stronger network of family. And so my understanding when going out to community is, is spending time and communicating with the elders rather than just going to the building where you're supposed to go to and talk to the administrative offices there is really take the time to, to uh, uh, speak with them. And, and you don't rush into it. So I remember my first visit over in the Middle East and we're sitting down with the, uh, the principals of the school. We're waiting to just talk about our program. The first point is to sit around and have tea. And this could go on for five minutes or it could go for 50 minutes. Uh, it's their time and their, their time is, is important because uh, I think that's just some of the thing that we've gotten caught up in is we've got a meeting, sort of fix it this time. And so it feels like impersonal. I'm here, let's have a meeting, it's just this time. I've, I've got an agenda and I need to go with it. Theirs is like, there's plenty of time for that. You and I are human beings that would wish to interact to see from a relationship perspective and they're sussing everything out. And then once they're ready to know that you're genuine and you're here for the right reasons, it's okay, let's, let's get down to business. Uh, so that was a real, uh, a real eye opener is that it, if you can understand that you start off as seeing as everything being different. And when you look around, this is different. Sorry being deficient so you look around there's deficiencies here they're deficient in that but then when you begin to sort of understand the way that they live their life where their values are you then see this well it's, it's just different it's just the different to the way that i was brought up um and then from that point you can then put yourself in the space of being able to make a difference being able to contribute to them to make a difference so that it becomes sustainable instead of saying, have I got an idea for you? This, this was the uh, uh, one of the biggest differences that I noticed for sure. So what was specifically your program that you went over there to deliver when I think it was with the primary schools? Yeah. Um, so it was, it was part of their national talent identification. They have a football when they won the right to host the World Cup. Uh, football took its, its deliberate focus uh, and then there were the other sports which is where I work with in the town line identification uh, so not every child is going to be make it in, in football um, so there'd be an off flow into, into other sports and there are certainly some people that may be talented in a sport that they haven't discovered yet so our role was to uh, go out to the length and breadth of the schools. It was at the primary school level just before. It's the equivalent here of grades, the, the primary school grade just before middle school. And the Aspire Academy had a, had a school. 
And we would go out to all the schools and do our, our physical uh, testing and assessment of a mass screening of around 4,000 uh, students each year. Uh, and that was great, just getting able to drive all around the country. You can do that in the size of Qatar. It's probably like driving from uh, Darwin to, to Catherine. It's the length and breadth of top, top to bottom. So, so you could do that. You could get right across to, to virtually every, every school. And we did all the physical testing and assessments uh, within, the, within the schools and then those that were showing the greatest level of competencies would then get an invite into the academy where we would do another series of, of testing, which would be more of a, uh, of a structured um, uh, environment and the, the testing protocols are a lot more stringent and uh, the, the climate control uh, was always in the indoor uh, center. So what we did last year and the year before could be compared to, to now because it's the same environment, same space, same tests, etc. And then from that, it went to a gold testing where it was handed over to the to the coach to say these are from the best physical uh, specimens that we have found. Have a look at them, run through your own testing and assessment protocols and evaluations, and then select them to be scholarship holders into the academy for the years to come from grade seven through the through the graduation. So is it correct that you're using game analysis software to do this testing? Yeah, so what, what we found was just the physical testing assessment alone um, was not necessarily the, the best indicator. So we wanted to see how kids would naturally move and what their fun. We found that there was a, uh, I guess, a bit of a deficit there with, with kids' just natural uh, movements or ability to think and change and adapt their movement patterns. Uh, so we had to look at another uh, way of testing. So the, the TGMD3, which is a test of gross motor skills development three, was uh, a particular uh, assessment protocol that we ha had adopted. Uh, it was from the University of Michigan from, from memory. And what that comprised of was some locomotor skills and some, some um, uh, ball skills. And so there are, I think, from memory, uh, several locomotor skills, run, jump, uh, skip, hop. And what that would consist of is we would give an instruction of what we wanted to do. So as an example, we might say we want you to skip from this point to this point and back. And then we would then follow that up with a demonstration of what that looked like. And then they would go and see if they could replicate that. If they were not able to do that successfully, we wouldn't count that as an assessment, but a trial, we would repeat the process, give the explanation again so that they can understand it, and then we would give them a demonstration again and then get them to do the test. Uh, we were not to instruct or coach. We just simply wanted to see through a normal course of when you're in a PE, you give an explanation of what it is and then you give the demonstration and see whether kids knew how to, how, how to replicate that. Um, and then through that process, we, we were able to see what areas of the general fundamental skill sets that, that they had and what were missing. Uh, and overall, the, the, the throw-like activities were missing a lot because they don't have baseball, they don't have softball, it's not integrated into there. Now, that's not saying that there wasn't a kid that, that had those skills. Uh, the question was, is it a natural ability, hence that they hadn't? been practicing it before or done any striking of a ball with the bat 
previously, this is something that, that was just innate and natural for this, for this child. Um, and so that would orient themselves to maybe going to sports like golf or, or, or perhaps other, uh, other sports. But that, that testing battery was quite time-consuming. It's a difficult one to implement from a mass screening stage. So it had a lot of its, its limitations to it. So we decided to be able to pass that on to the physical education teachers as a means of assessments and then through their evaluation of the criteria and the scorecard system, they could then um, provide us with the, the, the results. So then we could consider that as well when we go out to test them physically. Do they also show a high competency for these basic fundamental movement skills and striking abilities? Um, but then that took us... Yeah, that, that then took us to another level. <laughs> um, and that was, all right, it's quite difficult to run and because you, you have to have one athlete go through it each time. So you've got 20 kids lining up waiting and they get boisterous. So the other one was saying just, just observations at lunchtime when they're out playing, who is outside running around and moving around? Can you let us know who, and what are they doing? So there are kids that are running around in large groups, kids in small groups, and kids just on their own. And the we got the teachers to collect that information. So then when we would go out and test them, we would then match it up with, well, who are the kids that were out there moving around a lot? They don't have to run around. It's not compulsory. It's just lunchtime. You either sit down, eat your lunch, or you run around and play. And so we, we were using that as another alternative means to help us to be able to, uh, I guess, add to this jigsaw puzzle piece of, of what will make up an identified uh, child for sport X, Y, or Z at this 12 to 13 year pre-adolescent age group. Sounds very similar to the testing um, that we did previously at the Northern Church Institute of Sport in 2016, which, as you know, Michael Watkins, um, he asked me to come on board and manage and facilitate a research project called Move More, Learn More. And it was about trying to see if children had regular movement breaks throughout the day. There's two parts to it if there were regular movement um, uh, activities throughout the day, which went for five minutes. And typically in a school day, you would have, you know, two hours from the start of the day to recess. Then you would have another two hours or, or thereabouts from recess to lunch and then probably an hour afterwards. And so if we put in that first two hour block, halfway between at the one hour point, um, a five minute movement break in there, another one in the middle section between those two hours, um, and then maybe another one potentially straight after lunch, um, would that have any benefits to children academic and then as well as behavior and stuff? We also, the second part to that was kind of hijacked the uh, physical education program and incorporated a whole bunch of physical movement competencies into that. Um, so the typical stuff that you're talking about, like the running, jumping, hopping, leaping, as well as the sports specific stuff of, you know, throwing, catching, kicking, striking, um, and then just your basic fundamental sort of strength stuff like squatting, lunging, hinging, pushing, pulling, all that kind of stuff. And, so it was done for a different point of view, but it sounds very similar in the testing. So what was, um, what was the, the big goal? What was the outcome for all of the testing that you were doing? What I found about it, I mean, when you're watching and looking at a screen and just looking at the volume of, of kids doing a particular skill, after a while you, you begin to see a pattern emerging. And, and one of the things was an underarm throw. Um, and there's just multiple ways in which you can, underarm a ball but if they didn't fit the criteria it was marked with a cross and I thought look that's probably not a fair assessment because we do these skills within the con context of, of, of getting feedback so 
maybe they can do it outside of a testing structure and just in a free play. And that's when we found that that um, that may be a better way to move and, and try to orient maybe lunchtime play areas that might be able to allow them to mimic some of these movement patterns that, that we want to see and see how they do that with their own uh, autonomous control over those particular moving pants and the, and the variations that deviate off from that. And so from that, we actually devised a, an Aspire obstacle course scenario. And what we were interested in, as opposed to the TGND3, which just says, all right, here's a skip, skip from this side to this side and back, and we'll have a look at that. We were looking more interested in, in the... Um, in the immediate transfer from a skip to a hop to a jump to a bound to a leap. So we set up an obstacle course where they would start off with a single leg bound, jump over a, um, a vaulting horse, go through a balance beam walking, uh, into a back pedal, uh, into a somersault roll. And, and what we were assessing was them individually in those parts, how well they transitioned from one of the parts into the other part. So there's a transition, transition stage. Um, and the time that it also took them as well. Uh, and that was an interesting project that is uh, that we got uh, running and rolling. Um, I can't give you the stats and data from, from that because uh, it was still evolving, uh, just part of me leaving to come back here for family reasons. But it, it, it had its interesting uh, take on it. First of all, we wanted to see in isolation, can they, can they jump over the vaulting horse? But when we put it in the context where there's all these movement patterns to complete in one continuous circuit, are they able to do that? So when, as soon as they get to the vaulting horse, can they, can they get out of the back pedal, turn around, meet the horse within time to adjust their footing to naturally bound over it? Or if they're off the incorrect footing, do they adopt a different movement pattern that will allow them to be able to successfully go over the vaulting horse? So, so these were the things that we were really interested in being able to, to, to look at and, and find. And hence the reason why I thought we, we really need to be observing them in, in the free play environment. I mean, maybe as PE teachers, we, we had them instructed, but what, uh, I, I kids running around at, at lunchtime. What, what are they doing? What sort of sports are they orienting towards? So if we're trying to identify kids for sport X, and all the movement patterns that he's doing is more for sport Y, then hang on, do we have a mismatch there that he's shown the physical capacity or competency to go to sport X, but in the playground, he's leaning more to sport Y. So maybe he doesn't have a passion for sport X and we could be removing him and putting him in the sport that he doesn't want, or do we, or maybe he hasn't tried even considered that sport. And so then the other role is trying to get him to perhaps fall in love with it or try to understand the reasons why he may not be wanting to go into that sport. I don't Sounds know. like what you've done, a huge part of it is to take your rich experiences in unstructured play in the life that you've lived in Solomon Islands, New Zealand, Darwin, and incorporated it into what you then ultimately did leading into the mid-century of your life, um, the mid-century point of your life, and incorporating that into the work, that you, your life's work, and, and this testing and changing the way you go about testing from the structured typical PE type um, lesson into the unstructured play. 
Yeah, it's, it's taken a bit of a history, not not a long history. But once again, I fall back to what I was saying very early on about I wish I'd paid more attention to history when I travelled. So, so, so now I'm looking at it historically from my perspective as a kid. No, I get it that the, the, the world environment around us changes. I remember my dad saying, oh, back in my day, oh, here we go again, my dad telling me a story back in his day. And I'm doing the same. So I know the same thing is going to happen for my son when he's my age. So it will just continue to go. I have no idea what the world is going to be like uh, in, 30, in 10 years' time, let alone 30, 30 years' time. But what I do know, it, it's rapidly changing significantly and technology is becoming a major contributor to that and the population increasing, I'm, I'm also sure. Um, now, I've just lost my train of thought, <laughs> train of thought uh, uh, on that one there is what I was wanting to, um, to lead into. Um, can you repeat the question again? Is that okay? Um, Can you so remember? All, all, all I was saying <laughs> was it seems like what you did is you've taken, I'm trying to make a point. Uh, yes. The unstructured play that you experienced as a kid was so rich that you are still using it today nearly 50 years later. Yeah, it, it, it's not only just that, but it, it's probably more about the way in which we're trying to assess because we all want to evaluate uh, a kid if they have potential that might lead into, into a sport. And, and one of the things, uh, you know, interviews are a good example, is you've, you've got the history of what they've done in their workplace. They go into an interview and they sit in an interview and that is a completely different environment for them. They may not feel comfortable with that, but they are an experiential learner. If you put them in, in the workplace and have a look at them, and think, well, this is great. And, and we've all had that mistake where we've employed someone that's uh, brilliant, in the interview, and then hang on, things just aren't really gelling uh, within the within the workforce, and 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 hence hence it's looking at the testing environment, it's looking at the ecosystem within the structured play environment, and then it's looking at the ecosystem in a natural free play that's diverse, it's interactive, it's forever dynamic and changing, and how does a human being adapt within those circumstances naturally without anyone telling them what to do. So I was at the park the other day, I live across the road from the skateboard park, and there was a couple of uh, Indigenous kids that came over. One of them asked if they could use my scooter. And uh, I said, yeah, sure, you can, you can have a go on it. He said, thank you, really polite. And he was scooting up and down and going over the bumps, and then he was observing someone and trying to do some tricks. And after about five minutes, he was able to do those tricks in his bare feet. And he handed the scooter back, and I said, have you ever been on the scooter before? He said, no, very rarely, maybe once or twice. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, there are no coaches on these skateboard parts, but they are coaches themselves. They're, they're inquisitive. Uh, they're, they're observing. That's what coaches do. We observe to how someone is moving. We then try to practice it and manipulate it. And there's a lot of value that can be just, just taken from that that, that moment. Now, I view things through the mindset because I'm interested in the skill acquisition and movement. It's a bit like you and I could go see the same movie, sit next to each other, and then someone asks you what you thought of the movie is completely different to me. Um, so I think passing that on is, is, is also in our PE structured system. Can we get the kids to, to think about observation? You're showing them some video analysis stuff and observing it because everyone's watching TikTok and maneuvering and that was one of the things I used to do is, is go out to these primary schools and do some of those. What's those moves when you do those? Uh, Fortnite. The, um... <laughs> Fortnite. Yeah, yeah. Fortnite. The Fortnite yeah. moves. 
And kids were like, oh, loving it. He's an adult of this age and his fortnight means what's going on. And they really engage. And they were jumping up and doing all these movements. And so it's really trying to find something that can engage them into moving and being dynamic. They can do that. So really, we probably need to be uh, marketing experts, creative experts, and experts in understanding human behaviours and being great um, behavioural observationists, I guess, as, as part, of a, part of a trade among the many hats that we all have to wear and, and parents have, have to wear. Uh, I know from a PE structured system is that we try to get the kids to do activities that they could continue outside after the structured program, that they would, you know, mini competitions and things that they could do at home in that space. So we're beginning to try and understand that to see whether children will continue this sort of activity outside in their free play environment and, and does it make a difference or not. It's, um, it's, it sounds like it's been a very rich life so far. What's been the best parts of it, uh, the best experiences? Uh, for me, um, it's being able to understand uh, the faith of Islam, uh, mixing with uh, my Muslim friends. I remember during Ramadan, so we uh, had to follow Ramadan can't eat or, or drink water during the daylight hours, um, and and I followed those protocols when I was at at, at work. Um, and sure, it wasn't it wasn't easy. It was difficult. And I remember asking uh, one of my work colleagues, and I said, I said, you must find it really difficult each year through this Ramadan period, particularly in the hot, the really hot uh, times of the year. And he looked at me. He said, he said. Uh, he said, no. He said, you don't even think of it as being difficult because in their faith, it's, it's what is meant to be done. You, you, don't, you don't question it. You, you follow it. And that's the same for, you know, an athlete that's looking to push beyond the boundaries to become an elite level athlete is you've got to get up at six in the morning. Ugh, I'm tired. I don't want to go through. Some of the right attitudes, that's what I've got to do. They don't see it as being hard. They don't see it as being unfair. They don't see it as being um, unnecessary. They, they just get up and they, they do that without questioning it. Uh, you've got to eat these particular right meals with food while your friend is eating KFC and saying, come on, let, let, let's go out and stick into a diet program. It's, it, just, it just doesn't cross their mind as being something that's difficult. So the question is, is that a tunnel identification trait within itself? So really, that really took me to just simply changing the way in which we view from a level of perspective. I mean, there's a great quote by Muhammad Ali. Is, hopefully I can get it right. But it's not that the deer is crossing the road, but the road is crossing the forest. And so what I take from that is the deer, it's in its natural habitat environment, and we've just thrown a road right through the middle of it. And we have to watch, or the deer has to watch out for being killed. No, no, it was, it was their environment. We've changed that dynamic of it. What have we changed? Are we putting roads right across the middle of human movement intelligence by keeping it structured, by, by providing other stimuli that's moving them further away from the wonderment of exploring their own natural environment around them? Like I said earlier, when I went on the fun run, looking at the sea, the water, the land and the air, you know, in Australia, we all grew up moving through water 
moving on the land and jumping through the air, all that space of their natural environment, we, we were doing that. You know, Australian rules football, the, the fundamental skills you get from that compared to playing sports over in other parts of the world, I'm sure that had a crossover effect. It's a funny ob-shaped ball. You don't pass it naturally. You've got to, you've got to handball it. You've got to catch this ball that's spinning around this way from, from 40 metres away in the air. You've got people from all directions running at you. <laughs> it's not an easy game game to play. Then you've got to bounce it. You've got to run at pace and bounce it while people are coming from all directions and have an awareness of where they are. So, you know, I, I, you know, I think that's been a great a great uh, balance uh, for it. I, I know James McManus would often comment uh, when he played New South Wales State of Origin, said that playing Australian rules football uh, allowed him to be good through the air and he was picked off the back of his ability to, to, to take a ball that's, that's in the air. And, 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 and once again, that's that exposure to uh, multiple sports and, and free play in the backyard or over at the park. So what's the next exploring for you? in life? Uh, look, my life's changed so dramatically. I'd like to still continue to remain in sport. I, I, I certainly will, uh, as a parent of young kids, they're, they're going through sport now. Um, you know, I've come back into the into the territory. Um, you know, I've applied for a few jobs, uh, not been quite successful. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think is maybe there's an avenue that I'll, I'll take and, and approach. I'll I've gained such a lot of a lot of skill sets. Uh, do I do I go off on on my own? At the moment, my priority was being back because of uh, uh, parents. You know, I, I gave up a great job that that I enjoyed for that. Um, you know, I can always get another job, but you can't get another mum or, or another dad. And, and they're at the age and with COVID nineteen and travel, uh, it's it's difficult. But I've just thoroughly enjoyed being back in, in the territory again. There's something about the place that I I really enjoy. So at the moment for me, I'll, you know, I'm out there. I'll, I'll take whatever opportunity, advice that my dad had. The opportunity comes about, son, put your hand up and, and, and show them what you're, you're capable of doing. So, yeah, I'll see how, how it goes in, in the future. Maybe someone's watching your podcast thinks, hang on, <laughs> I like what he's saying. Here you go, son. Uh, look, I don't know. But I'm just happy to share my experiences and knowledge to, to people. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've, that's what I enjoy. I just want to quickly share a one a memory, one of my main memories of you actually, and in, in what you're saying. And if I can give anyone any advice about you, it's that you are so knowledgeable and you would be of value in any workplace, particularly with your sharing of knowledge, as you've just alluded to. So one of my most fondest memories of you is I had just started. I just got a job working with a local football club. It was Wanderers Football Club. And I spent um, five years doing football stuff, you know, sort of working for myself, um, similar to what you'd done on the side. And um, I don't know, I didn't realise that you were actually doing that job before me and then you were off doing all the wonderful things that you were doing. And I came along and um, spent, as I said, five years working with a couple of different clubs and the umpires and stuff like that. But I'd put something up on social media somewhere and you saw it and you sent me a message and said, hey, um, I did that previously. Do you want to catch up and have a chat and I'll tell you about my experiences? I went and met that I went met with you, and that was when you're doing the boxing program stuff. And I think we spoke for literally four hours, and we could have spoken for double that amount of time just about your experiences with the training, with the group, what it was like, that kind of comp that competition, that league, 
And I just got so much value out of that, you know, and, and all the drills that you shared that I still use today, some, a lot of the agility drills that you were doing, um, still use so much of that today. And uh, one of the thing that I've learned is that having sort of straddled the fitness and the sport industry a little bit throughout my life, the fitness industry tends to keep knowledge inside themselves and they don't like to share it because it's a they're a bit scared of someone stealing what they know and then taking it and then they're not having an edge anymore. Whereas the sport industry is completely opposite. And I'm talking about people who are at the top of the game. These are guys like yourself working at the AIS, working at um, elite clubs like Melbourne Storm in the NRL or uh, Richmond Tigers in the AFL, um, Australian you know, head netball coaches, for example, Lisa Alexander is a guest on, on the podcast who's a former Australian netball coach. Like the, the people who are in high performance are more than willing, in my experience, to share their knowledge. And it's it's just so, it's it's amazing. So, yeah, thank you so much for that that four-hour conversation. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're spot on there. I attribute that to growing up in the academy because the academy is about the youth development and there's, there's no real competitions. Um, when you're working for a professional club, you probably don't want to give away too many trade secrets. To be honest, what we know, that there isn't really anything that's, that's majorly top-level secret that we don't already know. To, to be honest, there was a, a Vern Gambetta quote who I've been following for many years and, and learned a lot from. Is it's almost done a full circle. Is, is that in general there really is no secrets other than just just hard work and commitment. You know, get get, get an athlete to put their hand up, getting a, a group of fellow-minded individuals that are prepared to go to hard yards for it. And, and that was one thing I enjoyed when in the early years. Um, uh, with the NTIS Rugby League, we'd, we'd get a few of our talented boys to go to the, uh, the Brisbane Broncos um, elite camp for youth. And theirs was very much when Wayne Bennett came out and would talk to the players on a Wednesday. So the camp would be for a week long in, in Brisbane over the, the school holiday period, I think in January. Everyone would be silenced when he'd walk into the room at around 7 p.m. They know he'd be coming. They're all ears. I want to listen to this guy. So he, he just asked, are there any questions? And everyone's just too scared to ask the question because it's a silly one. That, you know. So he starts off with telling a story. Uh, and he goes into his life experiences about being a young 15, 16-year-old boy and what that might be like. He doesn't talk anything about them being a rugby league player, but being a boy of that age in, in this world. Um, and for for like 20 minutes, like these kids that are there probably wouldn't have concentration in a classroom at school for two minutes and get bored. They were completely glued on every word that he said. And the key was to be able to empower these young boys to have the belief in themselves, had the belief in themselves to make a change and that this space and environment with other like-minded people will welcome you to it. But you have to give us something and put the hand up and come along for the journey and go for that longevity. And so, you know, it's just like, wow, this is, <laughs> uh, he's hugely successful. Uh, you know, Wayne Bennett and uh, one of the players that I was with at, at Wakefield Trinity, uh, Jason Demetrio, uh, unbelievable guy. He, he's with me, uh, with Wayne as well. Uh, there's some really interesting guys. Um, it's, it's great within that network and they still share 
a lot of the information you write within the sport. I actually moved away from the fitness industry. I started off in that area. I did my degree in exercise science because I did all the fitness leaders course. And there was someone that was, I was telling them that they were doing something wrong. It wasn't right. And they were saying, well, who are you to tell me? You have the same qualification. What would you know? So I said, right, I'll go off and do a degree in exercise science, human movement. I'll come back and tell you how you should be doing it. <laughs> and in doing that through that process, I found sport, the real passion and, and need, elite youth development and beyond. And so that, that's the path I took, which sounds very similar to what, uh, what you, you had just expressed to me just earlier. Anthony, I want to acknowledge you for all the work that you do across the world from England in the Super Rugby to uh, Qatar in the Middle East and here in back home in Australia. Uh, you've impacted so many lives and, um, and uh, yeah, I acknowledge you for the work that you've done. Are you ready for 10 and 10? 10 and 10. Okay, let me just take a, take a sip of water because hydration is important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So while you're doing that, so yeah, 10 no and pressure. 10, just to recap, is 10 quick yeah. questions in 10 seconds. You've got 10 seconds to answer. We're never too strict on this, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. So there's a couple of very, you may not you may not understand where my thinking is going with some of this stuff. So what I'm going to do is say it first and then get you to answer. You'd probably be confused. Yeah, where did you get that from? And then um, I'll let you know where my thinking is and then you can sort of maybe re-answer if you would like. All right, you're all good? Okay, let's have a go. Okay, question one is growing up in the Solomon Islands. Uh, I, I just experienced that. Yeah, away. First, first thing that comes to mind, growing up in the Solomon Islands. Uh, running around, climbing trees, doing backflips in, in waters, bare feet, uh, villages. Actually, I shouldn't have said question. It's not really a question. First, it's, it's a statement. Well, actually, well, oh, yeah. just a little point B to that one, the value of that, backflips and bare feet and all that stuff. Um, it, it was it was seeing others do it that made me think I'm probably capable of doing it because without seeing anyone else do it that was a similar age I was scared you know doing a backflip into a water like you have to commit if you pull out of it halfway through you're going to get seriously hurt so uh, seeing other kids of younger age than me doing that I didn't want to be the odd one out so I just I ran through it. And once I did it, it was like, oh, this is an amazing. I just went straight back up and did just did it repeatedly. I had no idea I could do it, but lucky I did it. Oh, Are you still doing it now? <laughs> uh, funny thing is I went to flip out with the kids uh, when I returned from holiday a number of years ago. And, and, and that memory of being scared was still in me. And even though I'm seeing my kids doing it, I'm like, no, I'm a bit too old for that. I, <laughs> I've got responsibilities now. You don't when you're, when you're five years of age. You have responsibilities somewhere else. I told you we don't stick to 10 seconds on these. Number two, yeah. the values that you have gained from sport. Well, uh, honesty, upfront, honesty, being real, yeah. Being, being true to yourself. I see right through you if you're trying to spin something that's just not there uh, especially with kids they're, they're the great leveler but they'll know whether you're fair income or not yeah number three just straight anti-is uh great learning curve great people um wonderful facilities and and, and a plethora of plethora of local talent that was there really considering Num Number four is, uh, you made mention of this, the value of why. The value of why? 
why, yeah, of understanding your why. Did I say that? Yeah, you said it, it about probably a third of the way through, you made mention about, I can't remember the context you're using it in, but you're talking about how you need to know not, not just what you're doing, but why you're doing it. Gee, I can't remember the value. Of it was very why. insightful at the time. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? The value of, of, of why. Uh, what that brings mind to is, is uh, generation why and an article that Wayne Bennett put out as to why are we bending to the rules of, of this new generation that want to take shortcuts and, and everything for now? What, why do we have to pamper down to those needs? Why can't we build them up and pick them up and take them forward? Uh, that's going to be my take on general because I can't remember that one but before. So I hope that's a good segue of a new answer to that question. I like that because I like the way the brain works and how you might have been talking about one thing, you know, 30 minutes ago and now the way the brain changes and what's relevant in your mind right now, the way the cells are all connecting and communicating, it's now yeah. potentially something completely different. <laughs> Number five is just Darwin. What comes to mind when you think of Darwin? Um, I love you, Darwin, Ed. Um, <laughs> the Paul's Ice Coffee. Um Really, it's, it's, for me, my memories, uh, strong memories, is the freedom of, of exploration just as a kid on my bike riding around to all suburbs with, without a worry. Without a worry, coming home late, it, was, it, was, it wasn't that much of a worry it was really late. But in general, everyone knew everyone. It was, an, it was a wonderful community. You felt safe. Um, you felt connected. Just brilliant. And that kind of leads me in nicely into number six, which is unstructured play. Yeah. Um, being the um, self-regulator and being having your own autonomy over how your body chooses to move and function with a given task in whatever ecosystem you happen to come across, whether it's in the air, on the land, or in the water. Number seven might sound a little bit weird, but drinking tea. Uh, okay, uh, cleansing. My mother, when I go for coffee, always requests for tea. Uh, and there's only one tea in Australia, which is a, an ad that I always clearly remember. Because I then realised, yeah, there is only one tea in Australia. That was so. This one was in relation to when you were talking about in Qatar and you had to sit down and have tea. So that way, you know where <laughs> yeah. my thinking was coming from. <laughs> yes, yes. I should have said Karak because then that would uh, have really connected with that. But that was, that was a good one. Yeah. Number eight. I'm not now. This one, I'm really interested in where you go with this one. Number eight is meeting points. Meeting points. Oh, meeting points. The plan is working. I keep thinking at Google location when I think meeting, uh, meeting points. Um, uh, meeting points is a hub of being able to get a collective group of 
uh, individuals, perhaps like-minded individuals to come together whenever I, uh, which is what I'm doing a lot of at the moment since I've been back, which I've done very little of before, but should be is reconnecting with all my old schoolmates at meeting points uh, throughout, throughout Darwin. And obviously all my friends over in Qatar, one day when we can jump on a plane and travel freely, there'll be meeting points over there too. Do you want to know where I was going with that one? So no, I have points, no idea and I do want to know. Yeah. Meeting points was in relation to, you mentioned when you did your park run, you stop and you look and you look at where the water meets the land and where the water meets the horizon. And so it was that concept that that's, I was like, how do I encapsulate that in just like one or two words? And so that's, that's how I came up with meeting points. That, that was, I've chosen to run along a path that has just got such beautiful scenery. If you're running and just oblivious to that and not stopping, then, then something's going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number nine is religion. Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, it's very powerful. It's a powerful means. Um, w- whether you agree, uh, whether you're religious or not, uh, it has its place. Uh, it has its goods and its bads, like with, with anything. Um, and it's a bit like, like sport. Sport can be dangerous or, or it can be healthy. So understanding the dangers and awareness. I mean, that's a segue from religion, but that's speeding off from it. But there, there's certainly strong connections, and that comes down to the belief, you know, this powerful belief that uh, the same principle can apply to you as an athlete. And number 10. I mean, the interesting I... thing from that, sorry, can I yeah, yeah, add going. one more bit? Yeah. Yep. I mean, the interesting thing from that is, is when someone's got a gold medal around their neck and they come up and the first person they wish to thank is not the person that they've physically stood in front of to shake hands with. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's usually God first, then followed by parents, mum and dad, uh, and then, then the coach and others. But, you know, that, that's a real understanding of where they feel connected and why they're multi-talented. Uh, you know, genetics would suggest otherwise, but but it has its has its place. Hmm. Number ten is a question which I ask everybody, and this should be interesting. If you could go forward in time or back in time, which would you go, where, and why? Uh, I wouldn't want to go forward in time. Uh, I prefer to take its natural course. I really would. Uh, Go back in time, where would I go? Oh, I would, I would probably go right back um, prior to 1788 um, onto a part of the land in Australia to truly see and understand where a civilization that has lived in isolation for so long have been able to create and build society in harmony in connection with one, to really see whether have, have we gone the wrong way around? Is there something that, that's deep within there that if we just stayed that way, we wouldn't have many of the issues perhaps that we do now? Because there are complications with them being able to integrate and adapt. We're, we're naturally adaptive, but for some reason, it just hasn't worked out for you know our indigenous populations. I don't want to get too heavily involved in that, but that 
that's something that would interest uh, me. We oh, learn so goodness. much from that. But Anthony, what a good way to finish. <laughs> Anthony Hazardine, thank you for being a guest on the Mind Your Body Show. It's been my pleasure, Jager. Thank you very much for, for having me. I know we tried to do this a lot, lot earlier, but I was in the midst of, of all sorts of things that were going on on the other side. So it's better now that I'm in the same time zone. <laughs> it could have been a struggle for me if it was outside of that. But you know, it's been a pleasure, Jake. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Are you frustrated that no matter how much you try, no matter how good you plan to eat, no matter how much you intend to exercise, you just can't seem to stay on track with your health and fitness goals? Do you feel like your best of intentions to have more energy and feel better about yourself results in having even less energy and feeling down? What if there was something you were missing? What if eating healthy was actually enjoyable? What if you looked forward to exercise? What if moving more could actually be really easy? I've put together a free ebook just for you, detailing the strategies for having more energy and feeling better about yourself. And I want to give it to you absolutely free. To get instant access absolutely free, simply visit jacobandre.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-A-N-D-R-E-A-E.com.